Oh, I fooled you all. Look at me. I'm Jared Threaten slash Eames. I'm a fucking genius. No. Yeah. He catfished. He catfished the music community. Pretty much, yeah, <laughs> but nobody bought it. That's the problem, because, like, three people showed up to all these fucking gigs. Hello and welcome to episode 15, 16, in fact, of History's Greatest Idiots, a podcast <laughs> in which we look back on the greatest mistakes in human history and give you lessons that you can learn so that you never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. Mistakes are fun, and we make them all the time. Joining me as ever is my amazing, fantastic co-host, Derek. Derek, how have you been, my man? How are things at your end? Good. Even better now. I'm all blushing and warm. That was was so kind, sir. Uh, I I hope they come across in the recordings. I genuinely enjoy doing this. It's like one of the highlights of my month every time we do these. So, yeah. I love the whole process, hanging out with you, talking about this stuff. It's so cool. So. It is. I, I enjoy my time as well. You're That's good. Qu- qu- See? Quite a, a nice fella to hang out with. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so how are things over in Arizona right now? Uh, pretty good. Yeah, had a yeah. lot of rain randomly. So Thank God. Yeah. It's just, it's going to turn into fires in the yeah. summer, though. It's kind yeah. of inevitable, isn't it? Someone's going to have a baby gender reveal party and the state's <laughs> going to burn down. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be a thing. Like uh, along with uh, when we see in this country, we see certain things trending. You know uh, about America. We see really good parts of your daily life, but we also get the stuff that is is less than good, like the kind of the angry political debates and the division. Stuff from Florida F- stuff in Florida, the voting <laughs> stuff in Florida, um, school shootings, really bad stuff like that. But also one of the things that seems to have become really popular. No, I wouldn't say popular is the right word, really prevalent in the last few years, is really damaging to the environment gender reveal parties. They seem to burn yeah. down a new state every single month. Yeah, you would think they would figure it out the first 15 times it happened. But, yeah. You know, like we, Someone uh, had a gender reveal today in Ohio. It left a crater. You know, it's like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? You're, you're revealing your baby's um, gender by exploding stuff. It's It's kind of... Yeah, it's well, the most American you know, way of revealing something. I've it ever is, heard of. and it's it's funny too that people are still doing gender reveal parties. They're probably going to change it anyway. Take that, exactly. Especially if you made a crater. Exactly, it's, it's like I can, I can think of like it seems like another industry that has cropped up to separate people from their money, and yep. um, I can think of so many better ways of doing like like grand gestures that will cost a lot of money like take your friends out for a big meal you know make memories don't put a load of tnt in a fucking pink barrel and explode half of your state make some memory yeah if we were doing a gender reveal in this country it'd be very much more sedate it'd be either pink or blue tea um there would probably be some sort of uh cue where a certain proportion of the people in the queue were more one colour than another, and that would be the reveal, because we just fucking love queuing in this country. Holy shit. Queuing? Yeah. Mind? The UK's national pastime is queuing. For, what just, is that? It, just like whenever anybody sees like a group of people in a row like queuing, they don't even need to know what it's for. They'll just join it. So, really? Like, are we queuing for bread or, or like Foo Fighters tickets? What are we doing here? Yeah, it's just... <laughs> 
wander around and stand in lines. Huh? Yeah, it's crazy. Well, shit. And there is <laughs> this is the weird thing about this UK, the UK. We do not have queue jumpers. They are social pariahs. You jump a okay. queue in the UK, you might get excommunicated. To be quite well, honest, I mean, it's that, that bad. It means something. You can't just pop yeah. in wherever you want. I know. Put in the time and effort, especially if you don't even know what you're standing in line for. Exactly. <laughs> in this country, that shit gets you sent to the tower. That's how bad queue oh. jumping is. Big time. <laughs> anyway, uh, away from the insanity of the UK and gender reveal parties, um, it's time to get to episode 16. So this is, uh, let me just do a little mental is arithmetic. This is our 31st and 32nd idiots um, that we've ever revealed. So okay. I'm really interested because you told me initially uh, about yeah. this person, and I, I'd love to know a bit more about this week's idiot. So Derek, can you please take it away? Tell us about your idiot this week. Well, um, as most people might have noticed by now, I kind of will use the term idiot in a real broad sort of sense. Not necessarily that they were idiotic or dumb, but sometimes they're just jerks. So sure. yeah. that, that's kind of who I got today. He was born in Italy in 1832 to Ooh. a wealthy family from Parma. Oh. Um, his early days are kind of not known, but it's believed that he attended university at uh, University of Rome, La Spezia, okay. but never graduated. Uh, by that point in his life, his family had kind of fallen on some hard times, so he wasn't really wealthy anymore, but he had some rich friends that attended the university, so the whole thing was kind of more of a, a four-year party than a formal education, I guess. Okay, uh, like most university but, degrees. Right, and, and he's trying to keep up with red, uh, his rich friends. Well, his family's fallen on hard times, so he's running around trying to keep up. He finishes without a degree and has pretty much no money left because okay. he blew it all on hookers and blow or whatever <laughs> they did back then. Hookers and blackjack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and around the same time, he noticed, hey, there sure are a lot of folks from around here running over to the United States, uh, making a bunch of money and mm. coming back. So maybe I'm going to give that a try. Absolutely. He took off on a ship and uh, arrived in Boston in November of 1903. During his journey, however, he gambled or drank away most of his life savings and arrived with what he's quoted as saying $2.50 in his pocket and a million dollars in dreams. <laughs> Which, that's, that's uh, I mean, Yeah, the irony right? being that $2.50 <laughs> is probably about a million dollars these days. So, you know... It's, he's doing <laughs> that's a couple of months decent, rent right there for the time <laughs> <laughs> um so he's pretty much broke and he's having a rough start once he first gets here and starts working jobs up and down the east coast as a dishwasher and eventually a waiter mm. and eventually then a on. waiter wow he worked his way up to being right. a waiter <laughs> it was a hard journey too fuck yes but he uh at some point, he becomes a schemer, the likes which the U.S. has never seen before, but mm, that's a little bit go. later on. Mm. So after his struggling to find success and working so hard to make it to waiter, he said, screw this, I'm going to Montreal, takes off uh, in 1907, heads up to Montreal, gets a job working as an assistant teller at the newly opened Banco Zarossi, I think. 
Oh, right, okay, so it's <laughs> Quebec, so it's some weird French shit, okay. Well, it's mostly Italian immigrants oh. in Montreal that are cool. using this bank. Right, and okay, it so it's a, kind of a local Italian, little Italy kind of bank. That's cool. Yeah. Right, and they were kicking out high interest on deposits, so mm. it was drawing in um, new clients. Smart. And it, it was at that bank where he learned in the framework for a, a good robbing Peter to pay Paul scheme that eventually makes him a, a rich and notorious man. Mm-hmm. Um, he rose to bank manager at the Banco, Banco Zerasi. <laughs> Jesus, why can't I say Just it? It's, it's simple, bank. too. Yeah, at the at that bank up there in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Um, when he gets to manager, he finds out, oh, crap, the bank's in a whole bunch of trouble because mm. we're not actually funding our interest rates with profits. Ooh. We're just kind of using the cash from the deposits on new accounts oh, to no. pay out that 6% interest. Um, shortly after that, the bank kind of failed. The head mm. of the bank uh, took off to Mexico with most of the money. <laughs> so just disappeared on it. Left left our guy high and dry. And, oh, my uh, gosh. It was Right after that, he wandered into one of the customers of the bank, found mm. nobody attending to a checkbook, so he had his way. He was caught by police um, oh, forging a check and spent three years in a Quebec prison. Okay. Um, he managed to actually hide that sentence from his mom, though, by saying that he was simply working as a special assistant to the warden at the prison, and that's why <laughs> those letters were marked that way, which is... Brilliant again. That is fucking um, amazing. What a smart guy. Jesus. That is really cool. Uh, after his release in 1911, he wanted to go back to crime, though, I guess, and yeah. tried his hand at smuggling, and Ooh. he snuck five Italian immigrants back across the border where he was caught yeah. and spent two years in Atlanta prison. Oof. And in a strange twist, this time... He actually could have said he was working for the warden, and it would have been sort of true, because during his time there, he worked as a translator for the warden, who was intercepting letters from mobster Ignazio the Wolf Lupo, Oh, and uh, so he was translating these letters for him, but he also got close to Lupo, and right. they became friends, so it, he wasn't really working for the warden, nah. but... Him and Lupo and a dude named Charles W. Morris served their time together. Uh, he further honed his skills under their tutelage. Damn. And after his release from prison this time, he wandered on back to Boston. Okay. So uh, by the end of the summer of 1919, he had had some unsuccessful other business ventures, and inspiration struck him for the big one. When he opened a letter from a Spanish business correspondent and out fell one of those international reply coupons, which is uh, a coupon that was issued by the Spanish post office and could be redeemed for U.S. postage. Mm -hmm. So he figured, wow, because of the international law, these coupons have to go at the postage of the other country. So if I had a bunch of these shipped over from Spain... There or other countries with low economies, I could cash them in and then return the investments, and I could borrow all this money to do it. Absolutely, so smart. The 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 gig was up or going or started. I guess <laughs> it, it was roughly ten percent more 
uh, in the U.S. for the Spanish reply coupons than what they were paying over there. Wow. So he exploited the system, bought up massive quantities of coupons, or was going to. He, he never quite really got around to it. Um, but he started the securities exchange company that needed investors. Okay. And he, he trained a, a staff of sales agents to go out and get the investors to get the money to buy these coupons. Sure. And you know what would be a good idea is if these in, these salespeople that were out there getting investors actually got some salespeople, and instead of pulling the 10% commission, each one of them gets 5 and then the top guy above them gets his 10 and it's, in a way, a pyramid scheme inside of a um, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Pretty much, scheme. yeah. That sounds an awful lot like MLMs these days. So you have one right. scheme inside another, which is amazing. So, well, see, and it's an MLM in ti- in, on top of a whole new one. But yeah. I don't want to say the name of it. I'm sure everybody knows who I'm talking about right now. I think I think um, I may have guessed <laughs> the originator of all of uh, this. Absolutely, yeah. it was one Charles Ponzi. Yes, um, I fucking love this guy. Problem with the the theory though is that. He, he wouldn't have even been able to ship the stamps over. It would have taken, like, Titanic-sized oh, ships of stamps to return the initial investments. Yeah. Um, so it kind of got weird. But between February and March of 1920, the amount invested had gone from 5000 to 25000 which was roughly from 60000 to 320000 in current money. And then they built exponentially, and by, nine, uh, by June 1920... Uh, they had invested two point five million dollars or thirty two million dollars in twenty twenty that is crazy um, money. by July he was like pulling in like a million dollars a week Holy which shit. is ridiculous <laughs> oh my god in nineteen twenty yeah, so people were mortgaging their homes though and investing their life savings, and most people didn 't take out their profits, they just reinvested them, yeah, so it Classic. just kept the wheel turning. Yeah, and the Securities Exchange Company started setting up new branches all the way from Maine to New Jersey, and they were just stacking cash on cash. Yeah. And it started to look like a really attractive investment opportunity because people were getting their payouts and bragging all about it, but they were putting it back in. Yeah, which is the problem. Even the simplest financial analysis would have shown most of them that the operation was running at a huge loss and it completely relied on new money coming in to pay these Mm -hmm. and it would all fell apart but nobody was looking at that just then um he didn't even try to generate the legitimate profits (laughs) like he (laughs) He wasn't really hiding it was he no he he you would think he would at least had contacts that he was talking to in spain and some of these other uh more depressed economies after the war that would have pretended to buy the stamps or yeah. something. They, I mean, I don't know. The real problem, though, was uh, by the summer of 1920, he started to atta- attract the media attention, and okay. it was actually good oh, at first. At first, the yeah. first, The first front-page article on him was run in the Boston Post, and it was a glowing review that read... Double the money within three months, 50% interest paid in 45 days, which 
I, I don't know. I, I might have fallen for that if it's like, oh, well, I mean, it's the the newspaper. I can trust Fair. Them. Yeah, that's a fair point. Right? And also, people were... <laughs> it's so patronizing to say this to people from 100 years ago. But these, like you said, this guy was the first of, of these kind of uh, hucksters um, that had an air of legitimacy about them. They weren't snake oil salesmen. This guy was a banker who had been brought up in the institution and there had never been anything like this before. So it would have been far easier to fall for that back then when we had no idea about them. But now we know all about Ponzi schemes and pyramid right. schemes and MLMs and all of this stuff, which is the majority of people recognize something that's too good to be true. But at the time, that phrase probably didn't exist and it may have done after this scheme. So yeah. very well could have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm... I don't know. I'm kind of bummed out because he's so smart. Yes. And ev everybody else is kind of so just naive, I guess. And there's no internet, so you can't look up the dude's no. been in prison for like six, seven years. <laughs> yeah, for fraud, so, I mean, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Per pretty much. I mean, check forging and, and smuggling. Smuggling, yeah. It's not the kind of yeah, person you would trust your money with. Ideally. Usually not, no. I suppose. Exactly. But the good fortune didn't last long, and an article piqued the interest of the city editor for the Boston uh, Post, who assigned investigative reporters to kind of look into it, which, like I said, even the simplest analysis of it would have unraveled it. Mm -hmm. um, but they were slow going. It was really his uh, own... Um, publicist investigator that he hired that really was his undoing really so he managed yeah he he kept the officials from checking his books by offering to stop taking money during the investigation that was happening with the uh i don't know if it was fbi at the time okay it was yeah. the the federal officials the state officials the boston post was looking into him and somehow the guy he hired, William McMasters, who was hired to promote him, looked into him and was like, oh, instead of that, I'm going to really dig in and show your books to everybody. He <laughs> snowed in his ass pretty much. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> so um, it was – let's see. I lost where I was. Oh, yeah. He, he was telling the officials that he would stop taking money, which was a super good choice because he wasn't even keeping proper records for them to look at in the first place. Ridiculous. So throwing them off and saying, well, if you don't look at my books, I'll stop taking money, <laughs> which is kind of like, <laughs> uh, I'll stop robbing you if you don't turn me in yeah. and give me that money real quick. Um, so McMaster's goes looking into stuff while the state's kind of on hold um, while they're doing a slower investigation. And... Um, He's, he starts discovering that the only money that was coming in from uh, – or the only money that was coming in was coming in from investors, and the huge profits that were being advertised were fictitional because, as McMasters would say, this guy was a financial idiot that didn't <laughs> seem to know how to add, which <laughs> – If that was the case, man, maybe he wasn't that bad of a guy. Well, <laughs> it's like – I guess it balances out, doesn't it? That's kind of incredible that this the the guy who is fooling people out of a million dollars a week apparently caught an ad. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> Seems legit. It I, does. I don't know. I don't think I'd believe it. But 
There's uh, several highly incriminating documents that are discovered during McMaster's investigation that indicated that it was a Ponzi scheme or robbing Peter to pay Paul. Sure. And that's when he took the documents and went to his former employer, this McMaster's feller, and he said, Hey, former employer of The Post, I have information for you. They said, We've got $5,000 for you. Would you go ahead and write us a story? So awesome. that's the article that was posted in, uh, or that was printed in the Post on August second, nineteen twenty, and by August eleventh, it all came crashing down. Um, first, the Post came out with another front page story about his criminal activities in Montreal, including the forgery conviction and his role at the Banco Zarasi sure. and his in- involvement in that scandal. And then amid reports that he was about to be arrested any day, he surrendered to federal authorities that wanted to charge him with mail fraud for sending letters to his victims telling them that their notes had matured, which seems like a really weird thing to get arrested on instead of just taking their money. Yeah. I guess they get them uh, any way they can at that point. You know, there may not have even been laws uh, around this sort of thing at the time, so they'll get anything they can, I guess. Right? We didn't know we had a ra- to write a law that you shouldn't steal from people. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I guess we should write that one yeah, down. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. <laughs> um, originally, he was released on bail, but after the Post released another article, the bail bondsman pulled his bail, figuring he would take off out of the, the, the country. He's probably right. And then he withdrew the the, the federal charges, and... Two federal indictments came in, charging him with 86 counts of mail fraud, and he faced life in prison. But at the urging of his wife, he pled guilty on November 1st, 1920, to a single count of mail fraud and was sentenced to five years. Jesus. Right? Lucky Released after three three and a half. (laughs) That is unbelievable. But here comes the good part. Okay. He gets released after three and a half years and is immediately imprisoned by the state on 22 new charges of larceny. Because <laughs> they were like, see, they got you on mail fraud. Sucker. We didn't get you on this. And he said, wait, that's double jeopardy. And mm. the case actually went all the way to the Supreme Court. Oh, wow. Um, on March 27, 1922, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal plea bargain that he had agreed to uh, had uh, and federal plea bargains have no standing regarding state charges, and mm. that the mail fraud, though related to the the larceny, was not the same crime. No, it definitely Thus, is not. That was a good ruling. N- yeah, not double jeopardy. No. Boom. In 1922, October, he's tried on the first of ten counts and is acquitted on all the charges. What? How? Uh, I don't know. I think juries back in the day just... Gave everybody the benefit of the doubt. They really took it serious on that uh, beyond a reasonable doubt thing, I guess. I guess so. Also, um, I'm wondering at the time when, like, seizure of assets came into effect, because there's a decent possibility, I guess, that he might have kept a fair chunk of the money he stole. So um, he was kind of in debt, and he had started oh. buying up like giant mansions in Massachusetts oh. and and things like that. John so... McAfee style, nice. Yeah, he had to sell off some property. Oh, okay. I think there was probably some fines involved. I didn't write that part down because it wasn't funny. No, 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 but that's <laughs> that kind of, <laughs> that makes sense because, you know, 
it's it's actually a relatively new phenomenon in this country where people have their assets seized by the authorities, particularly drug dealers. It seems to be a big thing over here where right. they, they lose everything. But that's only been a thing for like the last 15, 20 years in this country, whereas you guys have had like, you know, the state or, or the local authorities taking possession of people's ill-gotten gains that's been around for a while i just wonder if it was around back in charles ponzi's days because if that weren't the case then there was the potential that he might have had enough of the stolen money left to buy a decent lawyer or even buy a jury if that were the case but apparently not he's having to sell shit properties up and down the land so it would make sense um that they were seizing some stuff but it would make sense also that they hadn't started doing that uh the Seizure property thing. forfeiture yeah. yet because that was kind of a, a public enemy mobsters right yeah. sort of incarnation the, they got the the rico law and stuff over that's here that's right yes that Which they started really cool. doing to and i think that was in the 60s wow when that that went all the way to but uh, so in september of 1925 oh excuse me i'm skipping over because <laughs> uh, he was acquitted and then he was tried on five other of the remaining charges. See, they saved some. Yeah, smart, <laughs> smart. But the jury was deadlocked, <sighs> and the final jury found him guilty at the third trial, and he was sentenced to an additional seven to nine years. Still not As a bad. common and notorious thief. Yeah, I mean, I think there's people that do more time for drug charges here. Which <laughs> In is America, non-violent drug charges. If you're African-American, that can be almost a life sentence. kind of crazy. Oh, yeah, especially in the states that have, like, three strikes rules. Oh, yeah. Because it's a insane. felony. You get three felonies and you get to do life. It's like, well, I had an ounce of pot three times and now I have to live in prison? It's Come ridiculous. On, man. Yeah. Crazy, man. And, I mean, it's going to change once it gets all legalized, I think. Yeah, I think so. And it will happen because and, the tax revenue is huge. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm surprised they didn't see what was in it for them from the beginning. They I should know. have been able to figure out profits a long time ago. And... I swear, the the further back I step from stuff, I'm like, we don't look at history and learn from it at all. We just keep no. doing the same shit. No. We did this with alcohol in the 20s, and it gave us mobsters. I know. So it's And also, you know, you it, look at what you were talking about the 1920s. You look at what happened after the Depression, after the Wall Street crash, right. and how countries across the world were decimated financially. And what happened? We had the rise of nationalism, and then we had division amongst people, and then we had uh-huh. fascists coming through, and then we had world wars and a cold Sounds war. Sounds so familiar. Yeah, and <laughs> then what happens in 2008? Everything goes to shit. Bernie Madoff's lingering around. Everything goes hey, to shit, and nationalism like comes back, and we've got assholes in the White House and a prickin' <laughs> number 10 Downing Street and all of this stuff. It's just a giant fucking circle, so... <laughs> Well, at least we recognize it. We so do, we... but apparently not <laughs> enough of people in authority do. But anyway, please carry yeah. on with the tale of Charles Ponzi. <laughs> on in September of 1925, he's released on bail for his appeal on the state conviction, and during that time, he took off for Massachusetts for Florida, <sighs> and while on bail in Florida, launched the Sharpon Land Syndicate. Oh, no. And tried to capitalize on the Florida land boom that was happening at the time. Jesus. Where he, he was offering investors tiny tracts of land, uh, some of them underwater, because <laughs> it was really just a scam that sold swamp land, promising 200% returns in 60 days. Yeah, of course and, it did. 
he was indicted for that in February of 1926, charged with violating Florida's uh, trust and securities law. Ooh, yeah. So maybe, maybe they're learning that. Hey, people are out there stealing stuff. We should write something that says you can't do that. We should try and... Let's make Florida the land where nobody fucks up ever. Let's make that happen. (laughs) That didn't work out. Uh, It's going to have to float off. (laughs) Amazing. Anyway, the jury found him guilty on those charges, and the judge sentenced him to a year in prison, which is still not much. This guy is getting Uh, away with so much. I think they used to be way chill yeah on how much time well i guess if you only live 40 years that's well, the that's life true, expectancy yeah. <laughs> you're, two or three you're years an old is man if you make it to 50 time. aren't you jesus <laughs> um but he he appealed the, and was put out on bond okay. and when on bond he disguised himself and tried to flee the country Fuck. shaving his head growing a mustache <laughs> and signing on as a, a crewman for a merchant ship that was taken off for italy okay so not not the wealthy dude he was hoping to come back no. with he was going back regardless, yeah. um, except for he, I guess, liked to talk. And during a conversation hanging out with one of his crewmates, he revealed his identity. The word spread to a local deputy sheriff who arrested his ass in New Orleans, which Jeez. was the last American port before heading across the, the sea. So yeah. he almost got away with it, I guess. Yeah, if he'd, he'd kept <laughs> his fucking mouth shut, he'd have been fine. Jesus. Um he reached out to Calvin Coolidge and Benito Mussolini, asking for <laughs> deportation instead of going to to prison. Mussolini's but not going to want you back, Jesus! Right? <laughs> Wait, you went over there and robbed people, and now you want to come back home nah. for free? Nah, no <laughs> we don't need you. <laughs> um, yeah, he went back to Massachusetts and served seven more years in prison. Fuck, you know. He was released in June of 1934. Um, with that release came an immediate order to have him deported to Italy. Okay. And by October 7th, he was he was gone. Sure. Um, once he was in Italy, he jumped from scheme to scheme, didn't really make too much, uh, kind of crapped out, and took off and went to Brazil, where he spent the last years of his life in poverty, kind of occasionally working as a translator, Okay. His health kind of deteriorated. I think he went blind, and he eventually died in a charity hospital in region, Rio de Janeiro okay. on January 18th, 1949. Wow. Uh, his, his name's attributed to one of the most well-known cons of all time. It really so is. So he's got that going for him. Yeah. <laughs> this is a guy... I mean, it's funny because we've called them Ponzi schemes for a very long time, but the kind of the life of Charles Ponzi... Ironically, a lot of people paid a lot more attention to it after Bernie Madoff set up the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, which right. is kind of amazing, really. But also, here's the thing when I'm scoring Charles Ponzi, and this is probably, he is a symptom of a wider problem that seems to have been somewhat prevalent in the banking system at the time. And if you look at banking as it is now, we are still surrounded by crooked banks and crooked systems involving banks to this very day. And they are creating Charles Ponzi's up and down the world. Oh, yeah, all over. The Nigerian princes sending checks and doing that. I had actually, uh, I applied for a job. They mailed me, uh, as a secret shopper, they mailed me a check to go, uh, a cashier's check mm-hmm. for like four grand mm. to go deposit into my bank and then I'd use that to buy gift cards and 
then at the end of it, I got to keep my gift cards and some change or some mm. shit and write a report about it. Okay. And they like they kept texting me, go check, go cash the check, go cash the check. Yeah. And then once you know they cash it on a real account, once that guy figures out there's a scam, mm-hmm. they shut it down and they take the money back from me. Yeah, exactly. Which is a different different kind of scheme, but. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> the, they were all born from this kind of idea, and um, you know we we think that we're immune. I mean HSBC, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but they faced a huge fine because they were found guilty of laundering money for drug cartels across the world. Um, None of them did any time. No, though. got away with it. Absolutely <laughs> got away with it. And also HSBC, I think it was HSBC uh, branches. In Argentina, when there was a financial crash there and people tried to get out, tried to get their money out of the banks, they literally nailed the doors shut. So lit- no one could yeah. get physically get into the banks. They couldn't access cash points. So, and I mean, I, I'm still with them. Um, so we don't have a choice. You unfortunately, really. you, you basically have to take the pill that makes you ill. So, um, El Salvador is currently legalizing um, the use of Bitcoin as as uh, legal tender over there, and that's the first step to kind of ridding us of the banking system. And uh, while Charles Ponzi is one of history's greatest idiots, there's no doubt about it because he did not learn a fucking thing at all. Not at all. And he only got worse as time got time went by, even though he was now recognized by a large swath of the population across the USA. He is yeah. a symptom of a wider issue in that the banking system is and always has been dodgy as fuck and produced Charles Ponzi's regularly. Now, as far as he goes, he is a massive fucking idiot. I mean, he, he was onto a thing. <laughs> he was onto a good thing, right, for a certain amount of time. Like, it, okay, it was a terrible scheme. He was robbing people out of their, their wealth. But if he just stopped... At a certain point when he was making a million dollars a week, he'd have probably been okay. He could have gone back to Italy, he could have had a very nice life, very comfortable, but the greed got the better of him. And then right. after he somehow managed to get away with really short jail terms, he just kept on doing it. When he could have escaped to Italy, he couldn't help but run his mouth because of the ego involved in it. And mm-hmm. for those factors, combined with the fact that Charles Ponzi's name and his way of doing business has become the method for which assholes across history have conned millions upon millions of people out of their money, their livelihoods, leading them sometimes to absolute poverty and death, possibly yes. suicide. Yeah. Charles Ponzi gets a 92. <gasps> yeah. He, Damn, all right. He is <laughs> the quintessential idiot because he fits a lot of different categories. First of all, he is stupid. Like there's no two ways about it. He, uh, we can talk about the fact that he apparently was a very poor mathematician, as much as we yes. want. He didn't hide <laughs> his stuff, and when it came time to kind of moving on from his scheme, he he just kind of kept on doing it. He wasn't like Gregor McGregor, who was like, right, I'm done. I'm getting the hell out of here. He carried right. on doing it, and then you got the fact that he was so successful at what he did, people copied it and completed the extension of the misery onto other people throughout history. So not only was he a classic idiot for being stupid, but he influenced other quite horrible people who have ruined millions of lives since. So he's a double whammy idiot in my book. That's why I'm scoring him so (laughs) high. Also, the name Ponzi is now completely notorious with 
Oh you know, yeah, that that whole system. So Charles Ponzi, I am happy to give a ninety-two to because he's just a prick. Uh, so <laughs> fuck Fair you, enough. Charles Ponzi. I'll take it. I'll see you in hell. <laughs> um, so that's that's All your right. idiot. And now from yeah. one from one quite terrible liar who um, was successful with it to a, a kind of a very good liar who was not successful with it. Um, okay. This is a first for History's Greatest Idiots. Um, we've done mostly men. We've done some women. I think we've done two women, two, maybe three. I think two. Two, yeah. yeah. Um, we've never done a group before. This is a group of people. Okay. S- allegedly. They are... <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> this is a musical group that is really only one person, and we'll get into that in a minute. All right. I would like to tell you the story. You may remember it because this is very recent. Well, in relative terms, we're talking about people from the last few hundred years, really. This is very recent. I would like to tell you the story okay. of the band, the metal band, Threaten. And okay, I don't, I haven't heard of them. Ah, you're going to like this. And the story right. of faking it till you make it to the most ridiculous lengths possible. Um, before we start, I want to credit, um, I need to read this, Vince uh, Neilstein or Neilstein of MetalSucks.net for the majority of the research that I'm about to read out. It's kind of a combination of that and a couple of other sources like Wikipedia and stuff, but his article on MetalSucks.net on threatening is incredibly detailed and very well researched and is one of the best pieces of investigative journalism journalism I've seen in a very long time. So let's get to it. Okay. Threatening which is a fucking amazing name, was founded by Jared Threaten, real name Jared Eames. Um, Jared Eames was born in Mobley, Missouri. I think that's how you say that, Mobley, Missouri. Um, he formed the black metal band Sightith with his older brother Scott, which put out two EPs in 2007 and 2010, the latter of which revived the blasphemy, which... I mean, that's about. It's that's a metal, metal title, but it's, it's metal. like. Blasphemy. <laughs> um, is still available to stream and features a nude, heavily photoshopped Jared on the front cover as Satan. And by heavily photoshopped, I mean it's they. He's photoshopped his face onto um, a horned demon head, and then his body <laughs> is like a naked male model. So it's like literally his face is the only part of him that's actually real. That's if if I were putting out naked photos, that's how I. Yeah, you definitely go for a Calvin Klein model and, <laughs> and devil horns. Um, following the breakup of Sightith, who again it was him and his brother, and another band he formed imaginatively, imaginatively called Jared, um, he moved to California in 2012 and began the band Threaten as a solo project for which he adopted the name Jared Threaten. So he changed his name so that people would you know, right. you know makes sense I guess. In 2015, Threaten released a single, Living is Dying, which is an oxymoron, but also somewhat true. I get it. Okay. Um, uh, Let's see. So that was was it. That was their big thing. They released a single, and then they started doing um, kind of, I guess, what you would call the L.A. bar scene, which... 
Okay. Back in the seventies like, and eighties, uh... produced a lot of big stars. You know, you kind of your Metallicas, your Motley Crues. All of these people came out of doing like bars and stuff like that. And you know, genuinely, Metallica would get into fights with Motley Crue and stuff like that. But right. a lot of people started in the LA bar scene. So it's not the worst idea in the world to move to LA and do that scene where you might perform in front of like forty people, but one of those people might be an A and R guy. You know, so. Oh yeah, when I was playing in a band, I wanted to play out at uh, uh, what was the Viper Room. I can't even remember the name of the club. Yeah, yeah, out, where uh, um, Strip. Johnny Depp owned it for a while, and then unfortunately River Phoenix died outside it in like the early nineties yeah. of heroin overdose. That was really sad. Um, yeah. Also, a place yeah. where it would have um, been cool to play there. The Viper Room's <laughs> kind of become notorious. It's an awesome club. It's like uh, in terms of LA, it's up there with like I guess it's LA's version of CBGBs. But yeah, yeah kind of like that. But at the same time, it's like got this terrible reputation. Like Ed Furlong basically kind of spent years lost in that nightclub after he discovered heroin. So it's kind of yeah. kind of dark, really. But yeah, that's it's the place you get discovered in L.A. are these these kind of really hip bars where you can play. Yeah. Anyway, in 2017, the album Breaking the World was released with Jared Threaten performing all the instruments because nobody wants to play with him. <laughs> it's yeah. God, he's got some he is horrible at naming things. It is really really bad. And in defense of Jared Threaten, right? The guy is musically talented at least in the ability to play all these instruments. Like there are multiple videos of him actually playing these instruments, he is not faking. You know, he can play the drums to a decent standard, he can play the bass, he can play lead, and if it is him singing, which I assume it is, unless it's like the Tiger King dude who hired a professional singer to do his stuff. <laughs> Millie Vanilli. Yeah, Millie Vanilli style thing. He's a talented musician. That isn't the problem. We'll get to the problem now. Um, All right. Blabbermouth, an online website, online website compared to non-online websites? Yeah. Yeah, compared to the one you poke a pin in yes. in the court. Yes, and the little spider lives in. Um, ran an article in 2010 announcing that Satith had signed to UK record label Rising Records, um, which as far as I can tell, uh, this is way back in 2010, so this is Satith. No Satith album had been released on that label. Um, an EPK of Satith on our stage references an association with SPV Records, who was name-checked by Threaten's own label, Superlative Music Records. Um, we'll get to them in a minute. So Satith okay. assigned to a label, and then the new band Threaten signed to uh, the same label. Okay. Um, around this, so he signed twice. Sorry. He got signed twice. He got it was, the same His label? first band got signed, and then they broke up, and then his second band, second band, the solo project, got signed to the same label. So yeah, oh, man. kind of confusing. <laughs> uh, around this time, Jared landed what appears to be a legitimate endorsement deal with Rotosound Bass Strings. Uh, Justia.com uh, lists a trademark on the name Satith, filed by Jared Eames in 2012. Eames was doing uh, too well in... He wasn't doing too well in gaining a following, though, despite endorsement deals and signing a record deal, um, as after a years of grinding away on the L.A. bar scene, his Twitter account had 11 followers. So... Hey, I've been there. I mean, we all have, <laughs> but typically only for a couple of days, right? Not several years, you, you know? Yeah, usually. <laughs> um, eventually, though, seemingly overnight... 
Threaten's Facebook page started to get thousands upon thousands of likes and comments every day, and it was growing exponentially, and they were putting out loads of YouTube videos, like really successful YouTube videos that were getting like thousands of hits, and people were like, oh my god, this is, this is a real deal. These people are playing in front of large audiences. They've jumped from the LA bar scene. Good for them. Um, around about this time, um, because of all the comments and the likes and the, the kind of the growing numbers, um, Threaten, well, Jared, decided to spread their wings and announced a European tour in mid-2018 for that winter with stops in the UK, Ireland, France and Germany because Germany's like the home of metal music these days, more or less, so... In the winter, though? I know. What, are you fucking mad? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, I, I, can, I can see it because, like, you know, metal music and, like, darkness and, ooh, it's, ooh I'm angry. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, you get it. It's got a... <laughs> it works. It's got an environment. It's got a, a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And, like, metalheads come out in, in the winter. It makes, makes sense to me. So why not? You know, maybe you'll get... You don't have to compete with the festivals because they're all done for right. the summer. So... You know, small tour makes sense. That's actually good planning, and that's probably one of the reasons he managed to to kind of convince some of the musicians to come along with him. Uh, the band, uh, I think I've mentioned this briefly, the band included footage of them taken... For, this is for the, the release announcement of the tour. It included footage taken from their YouTube channel performing in front of stadiums packed with thousands of people and at festivals, although oddly... The shots of them performing and the shots of the crowd were always separate. Never got a shot yeah. of them in front of the crowd from behind them or the crowd looking at them performing live on stage. Always separate shots, right. just cut together. Interesting. Um, yes. Starting to smell <laughs> something fishy here. Um, in November 2018, Threatened... Um, was booked to tour the UK having informed venues they had sold hundreds of tickets and had paid the higher fee before each gig. So they've paid, they, they've sold advanced tickets to these shows. Really? Yeah, and the thing is, a lot of these venues, like metal venues and stuff in the UK, they're not big. Um, I think the, the venues they played, one of the biggest would have been the Birmingham Academy, which we'll get to, and there are a lot of academy venues up and down. Uh, the UK, or they were at one time. Um, I've been to the Birmingham Academy a few times. I saw the uh, the Flaming Lips there, which was a fucking amazing gig. Ooh. Really enjoyed that. Um, right on. Yeah. Um, there were about 3,000 people there, and it was fucking heaving. So right. it, it, it is not a big venue. And a lot of the venues, like the ones in Brighton, Camden Underground, these, these hold like 500, maybe. You know, so not, not big venues, but if you're selling hundreds of tickets in advance, that's great. You know, all you need to get these venues to look packed is like 100 people, and it looks pretty full. Right. It's quite a small place. Anyway, um, the, ch the tour achieved uh, widespread news coverage when it became known that the shows had been played into empty rooms. Completely oh. empty. The Camden Under... He buy his own tickets? Sorry? <laughs> said, what do you do, buy his own tickets? Hmm. The Camden Underworld in London had been told that 291 advanced tickets had been sold, but only three people turned up. Oh, and damn. And they were comps. They fucking walked in. <laughs> Amazing. Wow, that sounds like my band's gigs. That's so funny. Yeah, exactly. I think I could put on a gig tomorrow round the corner, and I'd pull in more people than that. Um, I could get at yeah. least six. <laughs> 
<laughs> so stupid. Similarly, 180 tickets had been sold for the exchange gig in Bristol, but the band played to an empty room. No one showed up, and the only people there oh, were the bar staff and the bouncers. So, kind of crazy. <laughs> well, at least there's them. <laughs> I mean, the silver lining is at least three people heard your stuff. Yeah, you know, maybe they'll download your record or torrent it. They're probably going to torrent it, aren't they? Um, yeah. Stories of empty venues began to break on social media before being picked up by Metal Sucks, which initially published an expose in November the 9th, 2018. Metal Sucks investigated further, identifying Threaten as Ames, so he hadn't revealed his real name, and documenting his internet presence, including extensive fake record labels, booking companies, management companies, um, all of which were, <laughs> were registered to the same GoDaddy account. All of these different companies... And I'll get into the detail of them. They all went to the same fucking place. Um, oh, man. It was also discovered... Hey. Sorry? Diversified. Oh, yeah. His portfolio he, is diversified. He's really <laughs> buying into some internet real estate, isn't he? Just like all these different yes. fake things. Um, I wonder it, if it's underwater. <laughs> it was also <laughs> discovered that the 38,000 likes on the band's Facebook page had been bought. The story was subsequently picked up by uh, music publications such as Enemy and then by the mainstream press. When the mainstream press did some digging, they discovered that all the people who had bought advance tickets were from the same part of Brazil. <laughs> Which yeah. is fucking amazing. They're supposed to show up in a gig in Bristol. It's like, oh, why are all these people from Rio de Janeiro coming to our gig? Right, there was all these airlines like, oh man, we're gonna make a bunch of money. We just gotta so be ready money. for this all one. Of these guys flying to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> so much, so many people from this one favela in in Brazil, <laughs> from this one kind of grotty part of the capital. That's amazing. Where have they found all this money? Um, <laughs> it was also revealed that some of the YouTube videos, and I think we saw this one coming from Threaten's account, featuring this is the really strange one, featuring mosh pit footage from their gigs. Um, was actually uh, taken from another band's um, video, redubbed to feature um, kind of distorted threatened music, and then included fake sound, no uh, fake crowd noise. So um, <laughs> they'd take actual footage from like a, a local mosh pit, put in their music, make it sound a bit rough, and then just put in fake crowd noise that they can get on like some website for free. You know? Wow. <laughs> Wow, uh, it gets it gets so much better. Also, the band's promoter, um, the actual promoter, didn't exist, and the company he worked for was fake. Um, also linked to the GoDaddy account. Uh, their website, uh, the the promoter's we company's website, featured dozens, literally dozens of artists. Artists, all of them were completely fake. Uh, not a single okay, one so existed. Okay, so it wasn't just ones that are like, who the hell is this guy and why is our stuff on his site? <laughs> exactly, yeah. He's never booked no, us ever. It, it, this, <laughs> the, the website um, features a, a history of the, um, the, the, uh, the company and it supposedly goes back to like 1964 and he's been working with people. It's like a load of pictures of some random dude. All of it completely fake and written by one person. Wow. I know. Well, stories sell, man. The guy went deep 
with the fakes. Um, it gets worse, though. The record label, website, and the history of the label were also all fake, as were a random website featuring dozens of plagiarised articles and interviews with major stars like Jay-Z and Beyonce and stuff. They just reappropriated them to this fake, really good-looking website. Like, it is a very convincing fake. Um, wow. the, uh, so they talk about huge recording artists at the time, but the majority of their uh, focus of like, oh, there's a hot new band, it would almost always be Threaten. <laughs> and um, the website um, awarded Threaten um, Artist of the Year 2017 and 18. So What? So he was using Ow. these fake quotes in press releases for the tour that he himself had written. Um, okay. Yeah, On kind his fake of amazing. Magazine, no newspaper, or jeez, wow, that's <laughs> a lot of work, though. That like, is, I mean, he he wrote tens of thousands of words for these websites because I mean, obviously he's he's plagiarizing a lot of it, but we're talking about the music labels website, the promoters website, their personal accounts. This is a lot of work. Oh yeah. He kind of missed his calling a little bit. You know, this is. Something that you could do professionally, I think. Something that yeah, people do I do think, professionally. I think that is a, a definite career path. Yeah. That would have probably been better. Bullshit, <laughs> basically, is, is his career path. Um, on November the 11th, Threaten's backing guitarist, Joe Prunera, and drummer Dane Davis left the band midway through the tour. Davis stated that uh, bassist Gavin Carney was unable to quit the band as he could not afford the plane ticket to fly home from Europe. So he's essentially stranded in, like, Bristol. Oh, man. Yeah, and, like, that's fucking bad, man. You're thousands of miles from home. Um, yeah, you're just at least... homeless in another country on another continent. I know. Awesome. And also Bristol's expensive, so that's not one place you want to get ditched. Uh, but at least he can speak the language, so there's, there's that upshot, I guess. Um, Carney has stated that he would be happy to work with Threaten again, although Threaten called itself a solo artist, not a band. The session live musicians were hired solely for the purpose of this tour. There was never any intention of them touring in the future. That's a fucking dick move right there. Yeah. You've ditched so, them overseas, you've not paid them, and then you're saying that you don't want to work with them again. The fuck? Yeah, there's just hired guns that I'm not ever working with again. <laughs> Probably never going to work with them again because you left them in Europe. I know. And, like, <laughs> I guess two of them must have at least had a little bit of life savings because they were able to fly home, but this poor dude was stuck in the UK. Jeez. Right. Just That's... panhandling for enough to catch a bus ticket across the ocean. Hitchhiking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a long swim. That's man. a long swim. I hope he's, uh, I hope he's aerobically fit. Um, on November the 14th, Threaten issued a statement reading, What is fake news? I turned an empty room into an international headline. If you're reading this, you are part of the illusion. No, Jared, you are part of the delusion. So he was trying to turn this into, Oh, I fooled you all. Look at me. I'm Jared Threaten slash Eames. I'm a fucking genius. But no. Yeah. He catfished. He catfished the music community. Pretty much, yeah, but nobody bought it. That's the problem, because, like, three people showed up to all these fucking gigs. Um, Metal yeah. Injection commented that, despite the publicity, we have seen no significant gains in threatened social media followings or their streaming numbers. Scott Eames, so his brother from the, the previous band, 
released a statement distancing himself from his brother's actions. <laughs> he added that while Jared may try to spin this as an elaborate hoax of sorts, I can assure you, knowing my brother, that this indeed was a failed attempt at entering the music industry. Yeah. Cold-blooded. A little bit. <laughs> uh, That's fucking harsh. He's, he's only my brother. Yeah, he's my brother. I don't want anything to do with him. That is <laughs> that is some really intense shit. Um, oh, man. Yeah, when your brother's calling you out, it's like, you've probably been doing this for a while. Yeah. 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 Pulling that stuff since kindergarten. <laughs> In December, Threaten admitted that the hoax uh, to the hoax and claimed to have sent emails to reporters exposing the hoax on the first day of the tour to build controversy. This claim was later proved false by the BBC, who found the emails in question were sent after the failure of the tour. So kind of after it had been exposed, he exposed himself sort of thing. So it's like, <laughs> I thought he was emailing yeah. himself. <laughs> I'm going to expose myself to myself after yeah. I failed. But I'm going to say I did it beforehand. Yeah, I, I'm trying to get ahead of the story, even though I'm now in its dust. <laughs> he, Elon, he Ian Bailey'd himself. Yes, he did. <laughs> he, oh, that's, beca- that's become a term now. Ian Baileying yourself. That's fucking amazing. Um, in May, oh no, it's the new Streisand effect. Is essentially what we're doing. Is um, yeah. yeah, that's even better. Um, in May 2017, it was revealed that Joe Prunera, Dane Davis, and uh, Dane Davis's mother Deborah had all filed uh, suit against Eames and his business partner for costs accrued during the UK tour. Good for them, actually. Yeah, his mom wired him the money to get home. Exactly. That's there literally right what there. happened. Actually, yeah, bless. <laughs> um, neither defendant attended the hearing, so Eames and this potentially fake person as Prunera was awarded $10,000 plus $250 in court fees Dane Davis was awarded $3,975.29 which I'm assuming was his fee for touring potentially Um, and Deborah Davis was awarded $4,035.66 which I imagine is probably the cost of a business class flight for her son to get back to the States (laughs) from Bristol International Airport or something like that so Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, probably a hotel too. Yeah, somewhere. and a hotel. Maybe like lunch before he gets on the plane, bless him, because he's got no money. <laughs> um, notices sent to Eames regarding the judgment were returned to the court, and the court had reportedly been unable to contact him. Um, although a suspicious, tall, long haired woman was seen boarding a plane to Venezuela <laughs> the next day. It was it was one of the ones that bought all of the. Uh, oh, no, it was Brazil. I was yes. Say, it was one of the people that bought the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hangover from the previous Brazil incident, yeah. Oh, my Lola God. Lola Threaten, that's who that was. <laughs> Threaten buying into the Ponzi scheme would have been brilliant, those two arseholes together. Um, <laughs> Jared Threaten returned to play the Camden Underworld in uh, London on November the 1st, 2019. So only a few months, well, a year after this shit went down, he tried it again, basically, off the back of the notoriety he'd gained. Um... um balls on yeah, this guy not not all publicity is good publicity no. despite what they say exactly not, especially not if you're trying to book shows exactly <laughs> well this is the interesting part because prior to the event manager ian viner stated that we'll probably promote it in-house last time there was no one to promote him because he had no fans at the time now he does no he fucking doesn't <laughs> He doesn't have any fans. No one followed him on social media. No one bought the record. No one showed up to the gigs. 
Anyway, Threaten's return show at the Camden Underworld featured robotic mannequins dressed in T-shirts with fake band printed on them. Threaten regularly handed his microphone to one of the mannequins to sing his lyrics on a backing track. Other stage spectacles included Threaten pretending to be fellated by a blow-up doll wearing a BBC News T-shirt. Because he's angry with the BBC hey. News now. Because they called him on his shit. Because they were like, no, hey, you're oh, a fucking man. liar. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm going to put a T-shirt on a sex toy. Uh, <laughs> before ending... Gotcha. I know. <laughs> gotcha. Before ending the show, um, Eames smashed his guitar, which... Fuck off. It was rented. Yeah, it probably was. Borrowed it from the guy who was still stuck in the UK. <laughs> fucking hell. And this is the funniest part. A maximum of 60 people were reported to have attended the show with a significant number leaving before the end of the 45-minute show. Wow. Yeah. He couldn't even get people to listen to him for 45 minutes? Fuck, no. They were like, oh, i got to see what this is all about. Oh, man. This guy sucks. sucks. (laughs) And the only thing he's got is a bunch of mannequins that he's, like, fellating. That's really weird. Um, yeah. So he's been sued for around twenty thousand dollars at this point. Probably spent another like forty thousand in expenses on the tour because you've got to book like plane tickets and he's paid the venues up front and he's got to feed himself, and put mannequins. himself in a hotel and all that shit. Travel around um, and basically, so that's sixty thousand dollars he spent plus plus God knows what else on self promotion. Right. So let's let's say. Let's say a round figure of like $80,000, something like that. Let's say that's a reasonable figure. All of that yeah. for 60 paying fans. I fucking yeah, hope... Those tickets had to be expensive. Yeah, I hope they paid him $15,000 per ticket, because if not, he is <laughs> fucked after that. Um, he wasn't yeah. done, though, because pretty much every word out of Jared, uh, Jared's mouth is a lie. According to MetalUnderground.com, Eames joined Abigail Williams in April 2010 um, and played bass on the album they released later that year, the band, uh, in Absence of Light. Now, apparently she's a big deal. I don't know if I've ever heard of Abigail Williams. Um, I don't know that I have either. No, but apparently she's like a big metal artist and like being someone who worked with her is, is a big deal. However... Abigail Williams's Wikipedia entry does not list Eames as having played in the band during that period. Interestingly, no bass player is listed at all, which suggests one of two things. Oh. Either they didn't use a bass player, or the second this broke, they were like, wipe him from the records. <laughs> Take him off. Scorch the earth oh. of this fucker's name. Um, it, he's not listed on the wiki page for the album, nor is he listed on the credits for allmusic.com. Eames' penchant for self-promotion makes it feasible that he sent MetalUnderground.com the news himself, despite (laughs) there being no truth to it whatsoever. Um, It's also possible that Eames' stint in Abigail Williams was extremely short-lived, and that's actually backed up, because after this article came out, um, Abigail Williams' band leader, Ken Sorceran, confirmed in Facebook post that Eames was in the band for a short period in 2010, and I've got this quote for you. OMG! This guy was in Abigail Williams for, like, uh, a week in 2010. The other day, I literally thought to myself that he looked suspiciously a lot like the dude, but then I thought there was no way that was him, but it's actually him. I feel like I won the lottery or something. Man, this explains so much. He was in the band for a week, and they're like, 
He's fucking terrible. Uh, Get him out. Yeah. Yeah. God, he he looks like that crazy guy, but he can't be that crazy guy. Is he that is he that guy? Is he that guy? So, so. Oh, he can't be that guy. Nobody'd be that stupid. What's his name? Threaten? Oh no, his name's Eames. We're fine. Um, <laughs> researching uh, Threaten and Seatith, uh, parallels between the two projects begin to emerge. Uh, they paint a particularly unflattering portrait of his tireless self-promotion and massive ego. Uh, for starters, Eames is the solo focus, the sole focus even, of all of Satith's promo material, even though his brother and other musicians are in the band and actually better musicians than him. Um, he clearly prefers to operate as a solo artist and assemble like live lineups for shows and stuff like that. So, kind of don't that know. He doesn't get along well with people. No, he he thinks that they're, I don't know, they're going to find him out, basically. Um, all photos on his social media and press pages focus solely on him, uh, despite Satith being an actual band with members for a period of time. Furthermore, in Satith, Eames already displayed another characteristic that would become to that would come to define his later scheme in Threaten, making himself appear much more popular and important than he was. Um, there's the former, uh, the aforementioned Rotosound bass string endorsement, as well as his efforts to sell merchandise no one could ever possibly want, such as Satith guitar picks. Like, <laughs> why? What I know you get those, you get those for free from like yeah. any music shop. If you walk into them in the UK, you you'll get handed like five. It's yeah. Why would you bother? Promotional ones are everywhere. Yeah, someone will buy my five dollar Satith picks. Like, no, no one wants your shit plastic. Um, so Not even the eleven followers you have. I know. <laughs> Like uh, Threatened, Satith also demonstrated E's predilection for um, his show, his, bringing his shows to international stages despite having literally no following in these places whatsoever. Satith went on tour of Puerto Rico in 2011, which was actually just one show in San Juan on March the 5th. The show was put on by a local promoter, uh, Core Grinder Entertainment. Core Grinder's Facebook page has nothing aside from a generic CE logo and a photo of an unnamed woman, while the company's Reverb Nation page lists Satith's Revive the Blasphemy album as one of its two releases. So, <laughs> beginning to smell more bullshit here. Uh, while that might suggest that Core Grinder is just another fictitious entity created by Eames for his own benefit, the really disturbing part uh, is that this, uh, the musicians recruited for Threaten's tour were contacted using a similar method through Facebook messages from a similar entity. I'll get into that now. This is how the uh, the backup musician, Joe Prunero, was contacted. Hi, Joe. My name is Lisa Golding. I'm an artist manager at Aligned Artist Management in Beverly Hills, California. We've signed a hard rock artist on our roster that is looking for a new rhythm guitarist for their upcoming tour in Europe this November. After seeing some of your videos playing, I believe you would be a good fit. If you're interested, I would like to set you up with an audition slash meeting with the band in Los Angeles. Let me know if you're available and I'll send you the details. Best, Lisa Golding, Aligned Artist Management. Um, additional research has uncovered that the Facebook profile belonging to Lisa Golding at Aligned Artist Management has nothing on it except what appears to be a stock photo of a random woman. Oh, God. Uh-huh. Wow. I know. And after their call, 
Uh, this is with Joe Prunera now. He's recounting what happened. Lisa handed off matters to a man by the name of Joe Abrams, who would respond to any questions Prunera had via email. Abrams invited Prunera to an audition the following week at SIR Studios in Hollywood. Lisa got in touch one more time via Facebook, asking Prunera to shoot her a text when he arrived, which he did, but he never received a response. Lisa was not present at the audition, but Jared's wife, Kelsey, was there filming, along with another woman. Um, Of Lisa's no-show, Prunera said, I thought it was strange, but people flake out, so it's not completely out of the ordinary. It's just unprofessional. Abrams was also not present. Jared informed Prunera that Abrams decided not to attend the audition because he had other matters which he had to attend to. So it's it, that's that's the kind of the final part of this story. So he signed on on the basis that he'd been contacted by an artist management, and then this artist management had someone to do the live events. And then when he showed up, there were some people there who were part of the band, but like not the people he'd been in touch with. So he was like, oh, "Okay, it's LA. People are busy," you know. What it's clear um, from Jared Eames slash Jared Threaten's existence is that his entire lie has his entire life has been one big lie, and the lie has spread out so far that it has incorporated other people into its sphere of influence. So that's the story of Threaten, the band that weren't really a band that didn't have a following, but somehow tried to tour the UK in front of nobody. Yeah. Wow, man. Fucking mad. I I almost feel bad because I, I feel like you can't be that dedicated and into it without believing that oh, you're yeah. actually really, really good. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know. I guess I have like a, little, a little empathy for him. Sometimes I wonder if that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everybody can well, kind of associate with the whole like fake it till you make it thing because everyone kind of like whether it's your um, resume or your CV, whatever it might be, everyone like kind of stretches, blurs the lines a little bit, right? You might say that, like, w- when I start with a company, I class my official start date as the, the moment I accept the job. So even if I'm not starting right. with them for a month, um, I will start it from the month I accept the job in, you know? And it, you, you might say, well, that's blurring the lines a little bit, but it's like, well, you know, that's a bit here or there. And I mean, loads of people have gotten jobs because they've had recommendations from friends who may not have said that they were friends. They may have been like, oh, I've worked with this person and they're amazing at their job because they're helping their friend out. You know, um, this guy takes that to a whole other level. It's really sad because he is genuinely talented. But the problem is, is that he seems to have an actual personality disorder, which has scuppered any potential of, of making it in the music industry off his own merit. So right, what? Well, yeah, he's basically his own friend giving himself a recommendation. <laughs> he's almost a compulsive liar, yeah. a little bit. Like, and I wonder if he showed up to that uh, that Williams band. He just threw on a mustache. Like, it's not me. He came back two weeks Hello, later. Hello, I'm not what? Jared Threaten. <laughs> Definitely not him. I'm somebody else entirely. <laughs> so, ah, uh, God, I wouldn't. I don't even know where to start on rating him because yeah. he is just, he is not no getting away with shit he no he isn't he this is the thing he's a failed liar unlike charles ponzi who had some success this guy had nothing at all despite all the effort he put in and i just wanted to point out one last thing before you rate him there is a message on jared's 
Facebook page, right? So one of his posts has got a thing. And the article talks about it. There is one post under one of the Facebook things from um, someone who uh, it turns out was his father. And the message is really, really sad. It's 47 weeks after the thing was posted. And it's something like, oh, really proud of you guys. I, I really miss you. Please get in touch with me. It turns out that Jared is estranged from his father and his his family because they were like, just get it together. Stop lying. Just none of this is true. Please. You, you're a good musician. Please stop doing this. And he's cut them off. And it's and this oh, is man. like a desperate plea from a father who misses his son. It's really sad, you know, when you hear that yeah, shit. Yeah, that is a it is because I mean, I don't know when I guess when your family and the people that are close to you are are like okay, enough's enough. Enough is enough. Yeah. you know, and that's the thing. I I don't know. I guess I always try to just be as honest as I can when somebody is like, hey, listen to my song or read my thing. Yeah, and I it's it important to be honest in those situations because when there's an any any creative endeavor, if you yes something up that is not good, it is going to cause a lot more problems down the line. So you have to be honest oh, yeah. with people with when it comes to creative and you know actual endeavors. Otherwise, they will they will fail off their own merit. Well, and just from writing, sometimes yeah. I need somebody to rip my stuff mm-hmm. apart. Yeah. So that I go, oh shit, okay, now I know what I can do to make it better. Absolutely. Because this is the parts that didn't make sense. Yeah. It's funny because so, um, when we started this podcast, I uh, showed my boss the first episode. And I was like, I want an honest critique, please. And he was like, lose the um, the introductory stories where you do Idiot the Week. And we we never did that again. And that was because a guy who has been in the podcast industry for years and has created something like 40 or 50 incredibly successful podcasts was like, you don't need that. The rest of it's fine, but get rid of that. So That makes sense. Exactly. And I Take took it, that. Yeah. I was like, he doesn't hate it. He's just given me a suggestion of something that he thinks doesn't work. And he was absolutely right. We get to the, the subject quicker. But when your family say something to you and they're like look you're because he is talented okay he's not terrible he's not like sid vicious where he can barely play a fucking instrument he barely hold the (laughs) fucking thing you know um he can actually play all of these instruments to a pretty good level the problem is his ego is such that he can't get on with others and he believes all this bullshit despite the fact it's literally him creating all of these lies to an extent where he spends hours creating them. So his family has said, enough is enough, please. We want you to be successful, but we want you to do it in the right way. And he's cut them off, which is really sad. It's because he wants to start the mountain climb from the top. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You don't ever get to do that. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's so sad. So what do you make of Jared Threaten slash Eames? Uh, just because of his persistence, mm. he's getting extra points because he did it again and again yeah. and all over the he place. He loves failing. He went back to the place yeah. that he left a dude stranded at to play a show years later. Oh, man. In front of 60 I mean, people. Hey, that's better than three. <laughs> that's true. That is a significant <laughs> jump. Fair dues. I mean, you should keep them for 45 minutes, but hey, you tried. Apparently not. <laughs> um. I'm I'm gonna go. He's he's a solid 80, 88. Oh, thank you. Yeah, eighty eight yeah. sounds good. Jared, it feels that feels about right. That that might be the highest score, genuine score that Jared Threaten has ever had, 
in his entire <laughs> musical existence. A score of 88. This just in. Yeah, I'd imagine... This if, just in. Jared Threaten rates 98 <laughs> on local fuck. <laughs> and it, the great thing is, is with Jared Threaten, if he does get hold of this, one of two things will happen. One, he'll try and sue us, which, you know, we haven't made any money from your name, buddy. If you want any of the zero dollars we've made from this, be my guest, you can have it. But um, yeah, he have if, he, um, if he quotes us and says, uh, big time podcast rates me 88 and doesn't specifically name us, then, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe eventually someone will Google us and he'll make us a success off the back of his failure. So, Jared, please talk about us. I'll just wander along tagging our hashtag history's greatest idiots on everything <laughs> yeah. he does from now on. Do you imagine if that <laughs> happened? But um, So there we go. Those are our idiots for this week. We have Charles Ponzi, one of the most notorious bastards in, in history, responsible for an entire industry of con and uh, co- lying misery. and theft. In, in human history, he is possibly the most famous thief of the financial world and Jared Threaten someone who is overrated but only by himself so (laughs) there you go not one of history's most famous people but certainly uh, an internet legend now because he is definitely one of history's greatest idiots so um, thank you everybody for listening to uh, the podcast um, what did you make of it this week, Derek? I, I honestly, because I messaged you yesterday, and I was like, I can't wait to tell you this story. <laughs> I was oh, so excited. That guy's nuts. It was such. That's like a good story yeah. of just crazy after crazy Fuck after crazy, and you, you've come with it twice now. Yeah, uh, in a row with just. Here's a shit ton of crazy. Watch this. Here's John McAfee. Then the next week, he is someone who's nowhere near as successful, but fucking just as insane. It's great. I yes. love it. I love these stories. Um, mostly because we get to talk about them but also because there are st- there are lessons there you know you learn from yes. these mistakes but yeah and thank you so much for Charles Ponzi he is such a fascinating character from history he really is he yeah and he uh, he's done so much yeah. a dishwasher and a waiter I know he worked his way um, up to a waiter <laughs> <laughs> god could you imagine if he it, became a busboy holy shit oh dude he'd have been raking it well isn't a waiter above a busboy? Oh, yeah, no, you're right. Waiting. You're right. You're right. Maybe head waiter. Maybe if he was a chef. Oh, like yeah. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's too big. Maybe like a sous chef or like someone, okay. somebody who preps yeah. a veg. Maybe like a, yeah, like a sous, like a dessert chef so he can go back to Italy. Can you imagine if Charles Ponzi had ended up becoming like a dessert chef and gone back to Italy and like reinvented gelato have, or something like that? We'd have some sort of cool little cake or something yeah. that was called a Ponzi, a Ponzi instead of a Ponzi scheme. Instead of millions of lives ruined by shucks that hucksters up and down the world. Oh, it's so sad. Anyway, a, a strawberry Ponzi, please. A, uh, yes, I would like that, please. <laughs> oh, that man. He's such a genius for inventing this. Thank you so much, history. Uh, yeah. And um, thank you so much for everyone for listening. This has been a really fun show. So um, uh, this is probably where we're going to end it. But um, if you ever do feel yourself coming up with a scheme that might be slightly dodgy and revolves around getting people to uh, part with their money or you think that you want to become a musician and um, self-promote yourself to the point where you fake YouTube videos and actual reviews on fake websites, um, maybe stop and instead of doing that, you know, invest your money soundly, 
not with banks and uh maybe <laughs> maybe um you know start your music career off slowly and and just make a soundcloud account and just go from there really so yeah indeed so, so that's our show derek would you like to say goodbye please goodbye everybody and we will see you again very soon take care now bye <laughs>